America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A very great and eventful day if you have been following at all some of the legal travails of Donald J. Trump. He uh, today is getting a judgment. Any moment we'll bring it to you live, of course, but any moment there will be a judgment from the jury, which reached a unanimous verdict in less than three hours, which no one expected. People expected the jury would be away for days. Trump, of course, is being charged with defamation. He is being charged with sexual battery. In the E.G. Carroll case, they have now nailed it down to 1996, when apparently that took place. And uh, Trump will be judged either guilty or not guilty. The jury, I believe that will be a later process, but the jury, which is nine people, it's six men uh, and three women, uh, they will be basically telling the world, who do you believe? Do you believe uh, the, the former president of the United States who was accused of when he was a TV star and a very successful businessman in New York of uh, uh, leading a... Uh, basic advice columnist who at the time was very well known, uh, E. Jean Carroll, leading her into a dressing room uh, to try on lingerie at uh, Bergdorf Goodman department store in New York, close to closing time, and he allegedly closed the door and assaulted her, and assaulted her brutally. Uh, does the jury believe that account or do they believe the account of uh, President Trump who said both in a deposition, which the jury heard and has said in a number of statements that he's made while the trial is going on, that the entire thing is a fraud, is a hoax, is a witch hunt, is not true. The, uh, the jury has reached its verdict. They apparently have come back from the jury room. Again, a very fast process. Anyone who's ever participated in our jury system knows that even for a minor kind of trial that is not particularly complicated, it, it is very traditional to take a while to get everybody to agree which is what you need to do. And yeah, it's a little bit easier to get nine people to agree based on a preponderance of the evidence than to get 12 people to agree. Uh, the nine people here have agreed. As soon as we get a, a, a note, which could be any moment, as to what the jury has decided in the Gene Carroll case, of course we will pass that on. Would this have an impact on the presidential race. Uh, we'll be talking to Charles Lifson, former professor of political science at University of Chicago, about this presidential race, which is shaping up more and more like a Biden versus Trump race. And speaking of indictments and juries and charges, uh, Charles Lifson is also a special, a specifically indicating that uh, there may be an indictment at any moment of Hunter Biden. What would the impact be there, particularly if Joe Biden, as some people have already hinted, would provide a pardon to his wayward son, Hunter? Here is the uh, verdict. The jury has found that Trump did not 
rape the E. Jean Carroll. Uh, number two, the jury found that he did sexually abuse her. And uh, the award to E. Jean Carroll <laughs> is $2 million, uh, which, uh, again, uh, given the fact that this is a very long time ago, uh, the defamation... Uh, I, that, that was also one of the charges. That's one of the five points of the verdict. Uh, they haven't indicated yet what the, uh, what the verdict is on defamation yet. Have, uh, do they have it yet, Jeremy? Not yet. Coming down. Uh, the, the big news, the, the president of the United States, the future president of the United States, because this is... They have pinned this uh, event down to 1996. Uh, did sexually abuse and assault Eugene Carroll in the uh, in the the dressing room at Bergdorf Goodman, uh, and uh, the award of two million dollars uh, is that about what people would have expected for at least uh, the guilty version regarding the assault. Uh, the distinction between assault and rape, I think the distinction involves uh, E.G. Carroll's claim that uh, that uh, Trump actually not only, ex well, that, that it was a, a full uh, a penetrative rape. Uh, the uh, New York Times, uh, Trump found libel in civil rape trial. A Manhattan jury today has found former President Donald J. Trump liable for the sexual abuse of the magazine writer E. Jean Carroll in a widely watched civil trial that sought to apply the accountability of the Me Too, hashtag Me Too era to a dominant political figure. Uh, and uh, the award of $2 million is uh, being confirmed by all these media sources. The Washington Post, uh, they write, a jury has found that Trump sexually abused and defamed Gene Carroll. Wait, wait. Washington Post says and uh, awarded $5 million in damages. Carroll accused Trump of sexually assaulting her during a chance encounter at a Manhattan department store. He has denied her allegations, calling her a liar. Uh, Carol sued him last year for battery and for defamation. And uh, the award of $5 million in damages would obviously be a, a much more significant uh, blow against President Trump than, uh, than the, the $2 million reported uh, earlier. Uh, look, is there anyone out there uh, who takes this seriously enough so that it would actually affect your vote. Would uh, you have any hesitation in voting for someone who was found guilty of sexual assault a long time ago and then lying about it uh, because that's basically what they're finding here with the defamation. There's no defamation. And they're saying he was guilty of defamation. The defamation involves the judgment that President Trump
Trump was lying on this. In other news that may be a good deal more serious on the long term, uh, after hundreds of missiles were fired from Gaza, Israel launched what they call surprise airstrikes. I can't imagine why they would be a surprise if they've launched hundreds of missiles from Gaza, which is controlled by the Islamic terror group Hamas. Uh, what do they expect is going to happen? Uh, that, oh, yeah, well, well, we'll shoot those missiles down. No, of course there's going to be a strike back, and the strike by Israel, uh, described as a surprise airstrike across the Gaza Strip early today, it killed three leaders of the Islamic Jihad militant organization and ten others. Armed Palestinian groups vowed to retaliate as the region braced for an escalation of violence. Uh, the airstrikes in the pre-dawn hours came days after a short-lived but fiery flare-up of violence set the rest of region on edge. Islamic Jihad fired 104 rockets toward Israel on May 2nd and 3rd in response to the death of a member of that group who had been on hunger strike in Israeli prison and starved himself to death. Uh, Hamas health officials said 13 people were killed in the bombing runs early uh, Tuesday morning, this morning. Islamic Jihad said the wives of the three commanders and a number of their children were among the dead. Some 20 people were reported injured in the strikes. We will bring you up to date. New uh, polling, new shifting in the uh, presidential race. More information about the mass shooting. Michael Medved show the uh, lawyer, uh, uh, Mr. Taco Pina, who is the primary lawyer for Donald Trump in the Eugene Carroll uh, assault, sexual assault and defamation trial that has just concluded and concluded much more quickly than I think anyone had any reason to expect. The trial was going to go to the jury today. But they decided in three hours. And one of the points that is surprising is uh, the the lawyer for Mr. Trump uh, did a polling of the jury to make sure that everyone uh, raised his or her hand. And it was six men and three women. The, um, the question is, did you agree with this verdict? Uh, the guilty verdict for defamation and for sexual battery, sexual assault. Uh, and they all said that they agreed. That included a juror who had gotten some attention because he had said that uh, his primary source of information was uh, MAGA uh, conservative podcasts, and one podcast in particular, and no, <laughs> not mine. Uh and uh, and yet he went along with the other eight jurors and uh, finding uh, believable the charges by E. Jean Carroll against Donald Trump. Uh, what is what does this mean for uh, people of faith in particular? Because, again, the uh, the indictment. For the payment of hush money, an indictment is different from a conviction. It's very possible, entirely possible, 
that when President Trump stands trial for uh, the the various crimes associated with his, his indictment, the arraignment that he had in the Stormy Daniels case, that he will not be found guilty. That could happen. Uh, most people think it's uh, probably likely, given the 34 different counts on which he is indicted, that there will be some finding of guilt, but who knows? But this is a guilty verdict. And it's a guilty verdict for... A serious misbehavior. It's not going to end President Trump in prison. Uh, why not? Because basically the only basis in which he was able to bring this case against him was a new law that they passed in response to the hashtag Me Too movement. They passed a law saying that there would be no statute of limitations to bring charges of sexual assault so she could do this even though the events were 27 years ago that she was uh, talking about here. But uh, at, at the statute of limitations does apply to any charges to be brought by the state of New York. Remember, this is a civil trial. This is a, uh, a, a federal civil trial. And uh, the the charges brought against Mr. Trump that would be necessary, uh, those have run out. There's a statute of limitations. He has no danger of going uh, to jail here. Uh, he can't be happy, however, for the $5 million. The $5 million, by the way, does not include his legal expenses. And yes, I know, people who follow President Trump and follow his various legal entanglements, he is not always <laughs> at the top of the heap when it comes to paying people who work for him, including lawyers. But uh, he's got to be uh, paying Mr. Taco Pina and his other attorneys in this case. He, he's got to be paying them for their services in this uh, complicated case. Uh, this does, uh, does this change... The basic arithmetic in the GOP struggle for a presidential nomination, a morning consult, which is one of the more authoritative polls, has new figures that just came out this morning. And uh, tracking the 2024 Republican primary, Trump leads DeSantis by 41 points among GOP primary voters. Trump at 60%. DeSantis at 19%. That's 60% putting Trump well above the majority status. Um, could that be changed by the verdict in this case? Uh, should it be changed by the verdict in this case? We'll be speaking with David French a little bit later, who is one of the um, uh, truly distinguished conservative attorneys who has devoted his life to fighting for religious liberty. He is very much an outspoken uh, Christian, and he has written intriguingly about the intersection of Christianity and Christian values with some of the, the political issues that are unique to this particular election. Um, there is also today, and uh, in, in addition to the 
the back and forth in Israel, the more than 100 missiles launched from Gaza uh, against Israel because of a hunger strike by a, a convicted Palestinian militant in Israeli prison. He died. Uh, they launched missiles. Israel hit back and killed three of the leaders of Islamic Jihad. Islamic Jihad is different from Hamas. It is different from the Palestinian Authority. It is, if anything, even more radical and more extreme. Today is also a very, very important day for the U.S. economy because today is the day finally when President Biden has agreed to meet with uh, the leaders of Congress, the Democratic leaders of Congress, the House Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries of New York, the Senate Democratic leader, uh, of course, Chuck Schumer of uh, New York, and uh, and to meet at the same time with Ke Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House of Representatives from California, Republican, and uh, to meet with uh, Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell, considered to be the key figure here who could actually work together with the president to prevent a catastrophe for the United States, which would be a default that could happen as soon as as uh, June the first, and uh, there was a uh, Biden. Let's go to the flashback there from uh, 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 clip fourteen. Uh, uh, we will actually go to a break, and we will be speaking coming up to. Uh, David French about the political situation, including the situation with the raising of the debt ceiling and the possibility of a U.S. default, which would be catastrophic for anyone with savings, investments, uh, or the future of a U.S. economy. Uh, people have been asking about uh, the potential of an oncoming recession. How serious would it be? This will determine just how serious and devastating it could be. Uh, we will get to that and more coming up on the Medved Show. Michael Medved Show. It is a pleasure to uh, welcome David French uh, back to the show. David is one of the leading attorneys who has fought his entire career for not only for our country as a veteran uh, of the Iraq-Afghanistan wars, but he has also fought for the principle of religious liberty with the Alliance Defending Freedom and other organizations. He's a contributing writer at The Atlantic. He's a senior editor at The Dispatch, which he helped to found and to begin. And he joined The New York Times as an opinion columnist in January of this year. He wrote a, a powerful column about changes in the Christian right. Uh, David, but I, I have to ask you about the news of the day um, because part of your column does fit in to questions of character that you were writing about in the New York Times most recently 
and when you take a look at a former president of the United States who was just found liable of sexual abuse and battery and defamation, ordered to pay more than $5 million in damages, have you seen the verdict in the E. Jean Carroll case? Yes, I have seen the verdict. It is not a surprising verdict, but it should be a pretty consequential verdict. Um, and I think the reason is, is, is this. You know, from the beginning of the Me Too movement, both its advocates and its critics have had a powerful point. Uh, the advocate's powerful point is, look, for way too long in this country, powerful people, powerful men have abused, used their position and their fame and their celebrity to abuse women. And we saw that with Harvey Weinstein. We saw that in the revelations surrounding a large number of mainstream media figures, Fox News figures, etc. And that was a powerful, necessary point that the Me Too movement raised. And in response, a lot of folks raised a similarly powerful and necessary point, which was this. It was, look, Sexual abuse and sexual harassment is awful. It's terrible. Our society should have no place for it. False allegations of sexual abuse and sexual harassment can destroy lives. Society should have no place for that. So we cannot, in our zeal to protect women from sex abuse, we cannot forget due process. The ability of a defendant to contest claims in court with the rules of evidence. And what's important about this case is there was the due process was here. This was not a situation where a woman comes forward and then there's a press conference and then there's a few news stories about it. And then people are said, told, well, you need to stop supporting this person because of this allegation. Here was a trial. Here was an actual trial. Witnesses were examined under oath. Uh, Donald Trump was examined under oath. Uh, he did not appear in the trial, but his videotape deposition was shown to the jury. So here we have a situation where you have both the allegation and due process and a finding of sexual battery, of sex abuse. And it should be, it should be in a functioning democratic society with uh, a sense of basic moral decency, this should be a very consequential moment. This should, once and for all, end Donald Trump's political career. Uh, but I suspect that it won't. And... Do you suspect that it won't based upon uh, there's a, an organization called Pastors for Trump, uh, which is holding a uh, big rally in, in Florida, which is described, um, uh, which is described in a, a tongue in cheek article in uh, New York magazine. Uh, they ask, uh, is Trump Jesus? Because. Uh, uh, there's so many of the pastors for Trump who really do believe that he has been anointed uh, for for service and saving. Uh, do you think it'll be harder for people to believe that with the same fervency that they've applied previously? Well, you know, I don't think... Simply because this is just one of this is one of many scandals. It's very consequential and it's very serious, but it's hardly the only scandal. Um, and the actual effect of it has not been to peel away mass numbers of Donald Trump supporters, including Donald Trump's Christian supporters, but basically peel away enough supporters to mean that the Donald Trump political coalition went from a winning coalition to a losing coalition pretty fast. And 
And so I do think that you will see some people who will say, okay, this is it. This is the last straw. But there has been already so much that's been rationalized, already so much that's been rationalized that it's sort of difficult to see. Somebody who's willing to compare Trump to King David, compare Trump to Cyrus in the Bible, or, or even compare Trump to Jesus, what they will likely do is say, wait a minute, well, this was a Manhattan jury, so I'm not going to believe anything a Manhattan jury says. And by the way, Americans really don't care about this. They care more about the border and try to deflect and to change the focus. But this is a finding that would end that would end the career of virtually any other human being alive. I can't think of a CEO that could survive this, a general in the army that who could survive this, a you're you're talking about a career ending jury finding for basically anybody else. And it's hard to even imagine another politician. If you had this sort of finding against Glenn Youngkin, that would end his career. If you had this finding against uh, Joe Biden, that would end his career. So almost any other politician, almost any other position, this is a career ender. It's a sign of our really remarkable times that we cannot say that about Donald Trump. Well, you ask you ask a question, and it's not just about Donald Trump. Uh, wait a minute, you ask in your column, didn't Christians used to place a premium on the importance of character in politicians, especially <laughs> right. during Bill Clinton's scandals? Uh, yeah. Your comment. Yes. I mean, this is one of the more remarkable turnarounds in modern American history. In 1998, the Southern Baptist Convention issued a public resolution on moral character in public officials, and it very memorably had this line in it. Tolerance of serious wrongs by politicians fears the conscience of a culture shall surely shall lead to unrestrained lawlessness and shall result in God's judgment. And Christians applauded that that statement. And remember the date, that's 1998, when Bill Clinton was, uh, the, his affair with Monica Lewinsky emerged. It was shortly after that that the very serious sexual assault allegations from Juanita Broderick were leveled against Clinton. And I don't know of a single evangelical conservative who didn't argue that those facts by themselves disqualified Clinton from the presidency. They supported the impeachment and the conviction of Clinton on those facts. And you fast forward to not that long in the historical speaking to 2016, where evangelicals who even as recently as 2011 and 2012 had been the subgroup of Americans most likely to say that uh, that character mattered politicians became the subgroup least likely to say it. And so there was a major sea change that occurred in 2015 and 2016 on the premium that evangelicals placed on character and politicians. So that now I'm much more apt to hear things like, well, nobody's perfect, right? Nobody's perfect. But they don't say that in other categories. It's not like they looked at Harvey Weinstein and said, oh, leave him alone. Nobody's perfect. Or <laughs> He makes good movies. You know, yeah, he makes good movies. Shakespeare in Love was great. Leave him alone, you know. You just don't do that. You don't do that for a manager of your local McDonald's. You don't do that with a company commander in the infantry. You don't do that for uh, a coach of a basketball team. You don't do that. Now, why would you do that for the president of the United States? That's, 
that's what's staggering. That's what's okay. There, there's another question that you raise in your column, which has to do with being concerned not only with issues and agenda and political policy, but with uh, uh, basically decency, niceness, kindness, generosity, uh, what use, people used to call godliness. Uh, we'll get to that and more with David French coming up. Pleasure to continue the conversation for a few minutes more with David French, who is a contributing writer at The Atlantic, at The New York Times, and a senior editor at The Dispatch, which he helped to found. Um, this is, uh, <laughs> let, let me share this with you, uh, David. This is the uh, truth social statement by Donald J. Trump, who uh, now is not just indicted, he's convicted um, of uh, sexual battery, uh, sexual assault, and defamation. And uh, he is going to be fined. Uh, apparently, it's more than $5 million, but it is at least $5 million. He writes um, on Truth Social, waiting for a jury decision on a false accusation where I, despite being a current political candidate and leading all others in both parties, am not allowed to speak or defend myself, even as hard-nosed reporters scream questions about this case at me. In the meantime, the other side has a book falsely accusing me of rape and is working with the press. I will therefore not speak until after the trial, but will appeal the unconstitutional silencing of me as a candidate, no matter the outcome, exclamation point. Uh, <laughs> you want to comment? <laughs> well, first, the idea that he's been silenced is wrong. He, he had an opportunity to, to testify in, in the case, and he chose not to. So he did not go. He did not look the jury in the eye and give them testimony. Instead, he had previously given deposition testimony that they were shown the video of it. But it's just not the case that he didn't have a chance to present his point of view. He did, and he did present it in the deposition. And besides, even if he had lambasted and railed on the about the case in the public while it was going ongoing, the jury wasn't permitted to see any of that. So uh, he had his opportunity to make his case to the jury, and he chose not to do it. And I think that's one thing that's really important to consider here is that he had an opportunity to go and look those nine people in the eye and say, I did not do this, and to respond to questions. And he chose not to. He chose not to. And so it's a difficult thing to sort of try to throw to discredit a jury verdict when you didn't even have sort of the the courage to go face them yourself. So, uh, look, the bottom line here is that Eugene Carroll presented sworn testimony that he did this. She presented there are people who presented sworn testimony that she told them about it when it happened. Other people presented sworn testimony that. Trump had behaved similarly in other circumstances. So this was not a just a he said, she said case. This was a 
she said, she said, she said, she said, she said case. And in those circumstances, it's not surprising that a jury found that the weight of evidence was on the side of Eugene Carroll and not Donald Trump. In your column, most recent column in the New York Times, you write, the great tragedy is that at a moment of dangerous national polarization uh, is exactly when a truly Christian message that combines the pursuit of justice with kindness and humility would be a bomb to the national soul. A time of extraordinary social isolation where people report less companionship, less time with friends, and less time with family is exactly the time when a healthy church community can be a beacon of inclusion and hope. What gets in the way of Christianity in its public role serving as that beacon right now? A lot of rage and fear, to be honest. Um, Look, I am not in any way saying that Christians should not use their voices to seek justice in the United States of America. In fact, the quest for justice is a biblical command. Micah 6, 8 begins with, what does the Lord require of you, O man? What is good? To act justly. So you cannot forsake justice. But the verse continues. It says, what does the Lord require of you, O man? What is good? To act justly, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before the Lord your God. And so what has happened is that the combination of rage and fear have caused those who are engaged in political combat to forget the second, the other two mandatory elements, kindness and humility. And so what ends up happening is that Christians in many ways become indistinguishable from anybody else in their political engagement. They're just as apt to be full of rage, just as apt to be full of fear, just as apt to support dishonest politicians or cruel men or women just as prone to conspiracy theories and sometimes more prone. And all of those things are the result of essentially taking only part of what Scripture commands and neglecting the rest. And look, at a time of real animosity, because that is the number one characteristic of American political engagement right now is animosity. People tend to be on one side or the other because they hate or fear the other side. In a time of animosity, as I said in the piece, Kindness itself is like a balm to the soul. It's like an oasis in the desert. And this should be a time when there is a counterculture of faithful Americans who pursue justice with kindness and with humility, and they should be a tremendously powerful counterculture. But because we've forsaken kindness and forsaken humility, we become part of the problem, not part of the solution. I uh, yeah, you mentioned kindness before, and uh, and of course, what you just said. I hope that everyone in America hears and takes to heart. But uh, there's one candidate who seems to take some of that uh, urging toward kindness to heart. His name is Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina. Right. He had a question at Saint Anselm College in New Hampshire uh, yesterday. And he was asked a question about uh, the cognitive difficulties of uh, President Biden and the 25th Amendment and uh, can he possibly do his job. And um, uh, basically, he 
he answered it in, in a very unexpected way. It was not what you normally hear from Republicans, which is that basically Biden is drooling and hopeless and he doesn't know where he is. Right. And he can't remember this, the countries he visited. And uh, Senator Scott said, I do not give the president a pass. I think he's failing his job because he's incompetent. I refuse to say it's because he's too old or he's too frail. I think the bottom line is he has been co-opted by the radical left in his party. He ran as a uniter. He's become a divider. You look at his policy positions. You look at his last state of the union. What he said was that I'm going to do what the radical left of my party wants to do. The problem is that we have in the White House is an issue of competency. We just need an election. The 25th Amendment is one that takes into consideration folks who are unable to do their jobs. I believe he's unwilling to stand up for the party, the radical left of his party. Um, it's somewhat impressive, don't you think, that he declined to go along with the general idea that Biden is completely senile? You know, that reminds me of when uh, John McCain was confronted by a voter who wanted her wanted him to talk about whether or not Obama was a Muslim. And McCain redirected that very deftly away from exploring the conspiracy theory and instead to this is a race with the person I disagree with. I, I disagree with him uh, on important matters, and that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the conspiracies. We're not talking about that sort of uh, you know gutter kind of politics. And you can absolutely redirect voters away from the gutter. It's not – it is not impossible. <laughs> you don't have to follow hyperpartisans into the gutter. You can redirect. And the other day I was doing an interview uh, with Margaret Hoover from Firing Line, and she showed some video footage of Jack Kemp back in the, in the George H.W. Bush administration – and the way in which he was speaking about politics is an opportunity to lift up and contribute to human flourishing of all people, not just Republicans, reminded me of why I became a conservative. Uh, it wasn't for grievance. It wasn't over rage. It was because I believed conservative ideas would contribute to human flourishing in the United States. And how hard is it to redirect to that? It shouldn't be that hard. And. I do think Tim Scott is somebody who stands out in many ways as not falling, uh, not going along with the rest of the crowd towards cruelty and malice. Let's uh, turn away from cruelty to manis, malice and embrace decency and kindness. That's the theme of David French. Bless you for it and for being such a strong advocate. Uh, meanwhile, new developments in the presidential campaign, which we will cover in this greatest nation on God's green earth.